has been hidden sometimes for years, sometimes for for a few weeks, and and we need to have it exposed, and we need to repent of it, turn from it, and be cleansed. Lord, we we ask you to do that work in us that, that only you can do. Lord, help us to respond in in faithful obedience, not to to pass the blame to you when we don't follow you, not to pass the blame to you when when uh, things don't turn out as we we want, not to pass the blame to you when we get stuck. In, over the idea in a sin that continues to plague so us, but rather that we 20, we'll we take responsibility for our sin and acknowledge your worth and your grace through it all. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Cleanse the temple, teach this way, do these miracles. Who who gives you the authority to do these things? How can you claim to be the Messiah? Walk around as if you're the King. And he effectively answers them in two ways. The first we saw last time in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, his answer was, My authority derives from the same place that John the Baptist's authority derives, and that is from heaven, from God. And the second answer we're going to find tonight in chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. And the second answer is this My authority derives from my Father, who is the owner of the vineyard. He's going to give a parable here to show them that God owns the vineyard and He is the, the owner's Son and He comes uh, on the basis of the authority that He's received from His Father. Jesus, in His ministry, has revealed Himself as the Messiah of God and He is going to use this parable here, beginning in verse 9, to show them that to reject Jesus as the Messiah, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, to reject Him as the Messiah is to reject God. Now, this is a big statement to say to Jews, to to claim or to make to Jews, because the Jews are saying, listen, God is our Father. We we know God. We, We love God. We follow God. And Jesus says, if you don't know Me, you don't know the Father. In John, in John's Gospel, He says, if you don't obey Me, you don't obey the Father. And so, what He's going to show them here in this parable, and that we're going to see tonight, is that to reject Jesus as the promised Messiah is to reject God. So let me begin reading in Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 9. This is the Word of God. And He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, He sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone 
which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus is claiming here to be the Messiah, the vineyard owner's son. And he's saying to reject me is to reject the Father. First point that that I think he's trying to make here is in verses 9 through 15, and that is sometimes those who have been given the most are the most blinded to reality. Sometimes those who have been given the most are the most blinded to reality. Here Jesus is speaking to a crowd, he's teaching them this parable. Now, generally, when you see Jesus speaking in parables, that means that he's speaking to both unbelievers and believers. The parable then is designed to teach truth to the believers and it's also at the same time designed to hide truth from an unbeliever because, uh, as you know, more truth for the unbeliever will actually result in more condemnation if they don't respond to it. And Jesus could have used an example, another example, like a fishing example or a farming example. But instead, he, he speaks of a vineyard. And I think he does this purposely because in Isaiah chapter 5, the nation of Israel is likened to a vineyard. And that's the point here. They are the vineyard. How are they going to respond when the, the Father rents them out, so to speak, to these leaders, these religious leaders who are the, 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 um, the vine growers? The recipient of God's gift is found in verse 9. A man planted a vineyard and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. The owner of the vineyard, I think you understand by now, is God. And he has confidence in the prosperity of his vineyard, the people Israel. And the first thing that he does is he entrusts the care of his special chosen nation to the vine growers, the leaders of the nation. Sometimes the people who have been given the most are the most blinded to reality. And the owner makes an arrangement with the vine growers. He says, here you have responsibility over this land and I'm going to go away for a, for a while, for a, for a long period of time. But the, but the agreement uh, also demanded that they would give him a portion of their crops because actually it was his land. So they were actually able to keep some of some of the, the, the owner's crops is really how we ought to think about it. The owner would go away for a long time. The vineyard would be under the care of the vine growers and they would be able to receive a portion of the crops. Uh, typically, the vine growers were, were effectively tenant farmers who would get 50 to 75% of the crops. But that 50 to 75% didn't really belong to them. It was really part of the payment that the owner was giving them for harvesting the grapes. When we read through a story like this, and I think when Jewish leaders first heard this, we, we see ourselves in the best possible light. Like we are one of the slaves who were beaten or, or left empty-handed. We are one of those. But I think we have to be careful um, that we are not like the vine growers. Sometimes those who have been given the most are the most blinded to reality. What kind of privileges has God entrusted to you? Have you used the resources that God has given you 
in a way that would be in keeping with His will, His desire for those resources. And that could be more than land and money, obviously. It can be uh, uh, your understanding of the Scripture. It could be your family, the people that you are closest to, that you have responsibility for. We've been given so many great blessings from God. God has revealed Himself to us through His Son as He's revealed to us in His Word. God has provided for us a refuge from the world where we can worship Him and grow in our knowledge and love for Him and His Word. God has given us the privilege of living in a country where it's legal to pray, read the Bible, meet for worship, and spread the Gospel. We have all these great things entrusted to us. We tend to think of ourselves as the slaves who were left, who were sent away empty-handed. But, but could it be that we many times act as the vine growers? That we don't fully use the things that have been entrusted to us in a way that God would be pleased. We have a great responsibility and accountability before a loving, holy God, the owner of everything. Well, in verses 10 through 15, the, the religious leaders reject the owner of the vineyard. First, they reject the owner's messengers. To reject the, the messengers of the owner is to reject the owner. The messengers, I think we can see that they are they, they come before the sun, that is, before the sun is sent to the vineyard, you have some messengers and and uh, or, or slaves, servants. These, I think, would be the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 20, verses 1 and 2, was beaten and put in prison. Elijah speaks of prophets who were killed in 1 Kings 19.10. In fact, he was the only one that was not. Listen to 2 Chronicles 24.19-21. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, that's to Israel. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, Zechariah, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. The prophets come with a message from God and say, Hey, I'm here to speak on behalf of God to you, Israel. To you, you vine growers, you you people who are over Israel. We're here to speak to you on behalf of God. Now, if we look at it from the perspective of the vine growers, you might say, well, maybe they didn't know that they were sent from God. Maybe they didn't know they were representatives of the owner. And so they didn't want to give the produce to thieves who are just masking themselves as servants of the owner. But notice what they do to the owner's son in verse 14. But when the vine growers uh, saw him, they reasoned with one another. Well, let's look at verse 13 first. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Verse 14. But when the vine growers saw him, the son, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. The religious leaders have already rejected the owner because they've rejected the messengers of the owner, but now they make it even clearer that they've rejected the owner, God. When God sends His Son, 
The owner's son, of course, is Christ, the Messiah. And I think by this time, the Jewish leaders actually understood this parable. Many of the parables they didn't understand. And that was part of the point. But this one they do understand. Part of the reason I know that is because of verse 19, which we'll look at next week. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on Him that very hour and they feared the people for they understood that He, Jesus, spoke this parable against or about them. This parable they actually understood the meaning of. God had sent some messengers. They had wounded some, beaten others, and killed others. And then when He sends His Son, they choose to kill Him. Notice how God describes His Son in verse 13. I will send My beloved Son. This is the same way that Jesus is described at His baptism in Luke 3.22. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is Him. This is how Jesus is described as His transfiguration. And God says it again here. I will send My beloved Son. Not just any messenger. I'll actually send My own Son. The One who is most precious to Me. Turn to John chapter 11. Because I think we need to answer the question, why would the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes, why would they reject God's Son? Why would they reject God's Son? I I kind of mentioned some ideas at the beginning of the sermon. But I think the chief priest of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, gives us the best explanation from his own mouth. But in order to get to what he's going to say, this is, by the way, following the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. They, Many of them see it, and the ones who didn't see it quickly find out about it, that Lazarus, amazingly, has been risen from the dead by Jesus Himself. And so they convene a council in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs, miracles. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, Jesus is starting to gain so much popularity that that we're going to look like fools in front of the Romans who give us our power to rule. They're going to take away our power. And look at, look at the reason here that they want to kill Jesus. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, this is, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know, nothing at all. You, know, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas, an unbeliever who's speaking better than he knew. He's saying it's better for one man to die than that the whole nation perish. If we had to make a choice, should we just let all of Israel die or should we just let this one man die? He's saying, let's kill this man. And I say he's speaking better than he knew because actually that's the case. That's what God had intended. It was better that Jesus would die than that all of us would perish. And the whole nation of Israel perish, perish. And that's exactly how God had planned it, that His Son would die at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. Turn back to Luke chapter 20. 
these vine growers wanted nothing to do with the owner, with his messengers, and with his son. And so when they saw him, verse 14, they decided we must kill him. This is the only way we're going to get the inheritance. He is the heir. He, he is the one who's on the will. And so if we kill him, then we become the rightful heirs of the vineyard. Sounds, uh, sounds a lot like the third servant in the parable of the mina. Remember the parable of the minas where the third servant decided... I'm not going to try to, to gain anything from this mina that's been given to me. I'm just going to hide it in a handkerchief because I know that my master is an exacting man and that, that he keeps all the profit to himself, which is not true. And then I'm not going to get any inheritance for myself. In other words, I'm going to do all this work for him, gaining him profit with this money that he's given to me, and I'm not going to get anything in the end. turns out that the one who gained five and the one who gained two actually did receive some in the end. They gained five cities. and uh, Actually, ten cities and then five cities. And so, the third servant was a little bit bitter because he didn't think the Master would, would, re- would reward him for his work. And that's the way that it is here with these vine growers. Listen, the Master's not going to give us anything. And so, if we want to get anything, we're going to have to take it ourselves. And so, let's do it by killing the Son. Instead of seeing the Son's coming as a means to repent, they harden their hearts and they decide to kill the Son in order to get more for themselves. This is the Jewish, this is the response of the Jewish religious leaders. You see, these leaders thought that if they could just eliminate Jesus, they would get all of the power and authority from God over the people of Israel. Do you realize how powerful of a nation we could be as Israel? It's not that just we're just going to rule over Israel. Remember, Israel's going to rule the world. And so if he, this little man, takes away our power, we're going to have nothing. We need to hold on to that power. So that when Israel becomes the prominent nation, we are the ones who are in charge. Because through Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So if we're going to be a significant leader in Israel, if we're going to be a significant ruler in the world, then we cannot allow Jesus to usurp us by claiming authority over this nation. And so we will kill Him. Sometimes those who have been given the most are the most blinded to reality. The second thing that Jesus teaches us here is that rejection of God's Son will surely result in judgment from God. Rejection of God's Son will surely result in judgment from God. There is guaranteed destruction for all who reject God's Son. Look at verse 15. And so, here's the response to their decision to kill Him. So they threw Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. This is, I think, talking about the idea. It's really a prophecy we'll talk about later. That that they they take Him outside of the city. He's too unclean to, to do it here in the city. So we'll take Him outside of the city, which is where He was crucified, outside of Jerusalem. And then at the end of verse 15, what then... Jesus kind of asks a question. He, I think He's done with the parable now, and now He wants to think about application. So here's the question for the crowd. 
what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He wants them to come to an obvious conclusion. What do you think God's going to do? What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do when He sends the Son of all people and He's rejected and killed? He wants them to see. He wants the hearers to hear and understand that to disrespect God's greatest possession, His Son, is to disrespect God. And to disrespect God is to guarantee judgment. Jesus answers His own question in verse 16. He says, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. He will come Himself. One of the amazing things in all of history is that God doesn't subcontract out the work of judgment, of final judgment. It comes from Him all by Himself. It is God who will destroy those who oppose Him. Now, it's not that God's going to destroy the whole vineyard. That's what we need to recognize about this parable. He's not going to destroy the whole vineyard, which is representative of whom? The nation of Israel. He's not going to destroy all of Israel. That's not the point. Instead, He's going to destroy the vine growers, okay? the, the, the rented workers, that is, the, the leaders of Israel. The land and the promises are still held out for Israel if they are willing to accept God's Son, if they're willing to repent and believe that Jesus is enough. And that vineyard will one day flourish like never before. That's still coming once Israel repents. But He's saying, for you vine growers who did not take care of the responsibility, did not have proper accountability to Me with regard to the vineyard that I had entrusted to you, I'm going to take it away from you and give it to others. And I think here, Jesus is actually prophesying about what He will do for His church, for His bride, that He's going to give part of the blessings of the resources of this vineyard to the Gentiles, that He's going to open it up to more than just Israel. Israel will still receive her blessing when she repents, but, but Jesus is opening up the door to the Gentiles. Notice the response of the audience in verse 16. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. The audience recognizes that this parable is referring to the leaders of the nation of Israel. And they can't imagine that this would ever happen. That the son of the owner, that the son of God himself would actually be killed. And yet, we know that this speech happens, I think it's on Tuesday, before He dies. In less than a week, Jesus will be crucified. They, they can't imagine it. How could the Son of God be rejected and killed? Further proof for the judgment of those who reject Jesus comes in verses 17 and 18. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This Old Testament text that is quoted in verse 17 comes from Psalm 118.22. Same psalm that was quoted at the triumphal entry. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
same psalm. Uh, now he's quoting it, uh, a different part of that psalm, and he's applying it to their judgment for when they reject him. He's saying that those who reject this stone will be destroyed by this stone. Those who reject this stone will be destroyed by this stone. This, the, the rejected stone is the rejected Son. It's Christ. It's Jesus. Again, the builders are the vine growers. And so the stone, Jesus, which the builders, the vine growers, the, the, the religious leaders rejected, they're going to be destroyed by this Jesus. Because this Jesus has become, the end of verse 17, the chief cornerstone. This cornerstone could be one of two things. It could be actually the foundational stone, the most important stone in the building that kind of uh, uh, made sure that everything was in line and in place. Or it could be uh, the top stone of the roof parapet. Uh, if if, If this capstone were too low, it could be tripped over, sending a person over the parapet. And if it were too light or insecurely fastened, then if someone leaned against it, it would dislodge and send the person crashing down on some passerby. And this stone, as some commentators suggest, is not only chosen by God and promoted to the premier place, but it's also dangerous. That is, it's dangerous to reject. The Jews understood this quotation from Psalm 118 that it referred to Israel, but here Jesus applies it to Himself. They understood it that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They understood that to be the nation of Israel. That stone is the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying, that stone is Me. I am the culmination of the nation of Israel. I'm applying it to Myself. I am the center of Israel. I'm the pinnacle of Israel. I am the son of the owner of the vineyard. And you have rejected Me. And as a result, you will be judged. So, if we understand verses 17 and 18, we also understand that verse 15 is actually a prophecy. Notice verse 15. So they threw Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. Verse 15 is really a prophecy that Jesus knows about their plan to kill Him. He is saying in parabolic form, I'm going to be killed by you, religious leaders. I'm coming with a message from God and you are going to kill me. He's predicting His own death. And here we see a, a, a symbol of God's mercy. That even though He knows that some of His audience will be responsible for His death, what is He offering to them? Here in verses 17 and 18. He's offering them hope. He's saying, don't stumble over Me and you won't be crushed by Me. I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. You see, this is the mercy of God. He is long-suffering. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He he, He wants no part in the death of the wicked. But He will bring it about for those who reject Him, even though Jesus knew that part of His audience were going to reject Him. He still offered out hope that if they would turn in faith to Him, then He would spare them from God's judgment. Whether you fall on Him 
or whether He falls on you, if you don't accept Jesus, you will be destroyed by Him. Jesus will be your judge. Let me conclude by answering four questions that that I think would be helpful for us to consider this evening. Four questions. Number one, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, on a base level, we have to say that it was the vine growers. It was the Jewish religious leaders. But we can't say that God had anything to do with it, could we? But look at verse 13 again. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And then verse 15, So they threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. Who was it that sent his son to the vine growers who hated the owner and hated his messengers? It was the owner himself. It was God. It was God who sent his son to die. Now, I might say, well, wait a second. I mean, he's, he, he, he said that they might respect Him. Verse 13, perhaps they will respect Him. Was, was God confused? Did He not know what was going to happen? But, but again, when we're looking at parables, we have to recognize they don't correlate in every single point. Jesus is trying to make an overall point. So we, we can't make them connect in every single point. It's not meant to match in every detail. It's not an allegory. Instead, He's saying, listen... God is responsible in some way for sending His Son to die. The parable ends with verse 16. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And Jesus uses verses 17 and 18 to show that, listen, this psalm that was written hundreds of years ago before the sending of the Son actually laid out the plan that the Messiah would be rejected. That that He would be rejected by the builders. The psalm had predicted that several hundred years before. This rejected stone was planned long ago. One theologian writes, the death of the Son was not a surprise. It was a plan. So in the parable itself, we're told not to construe the owner's words, they will respect my son as part of the way God is being represented. That is what a human owner might say. It is incidental to the point of the parable. What God said, in fact, is, here's what God said, verse 17, the builders will reject my stone, my son, but I'm going to make him the chief cornerstone. I'm going to make him Lord and Christ. And so on one level, we can answer that question, who is responsible for the death of Jesus by saying the Jews were, the Jewish religious leaders were. But on an ultimate level, we can also say that it was God who was was responsible for the death of Jesus. That He had planned that Jesus would die. Isaiah 53.10 says that the Lord was pleased to crush Him. It was part of God's plan to allow for Jesus to die. He was responsible for it in the sense that He planned it, but not in the sense that He deserves judgment for killing His own Son. We could ask, well, why would God send His beloved Son to a ruthless bunch of God-haters if He knew it was going to happen? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God prevent that from happening? And I can think of at least two reasons why God would send His Son 
to a bunch of ruthless God-haters. And the first is because He loves you. The most powerful way that God could ever show you His love has been displayed for you at the cross. He sent His Son to take your place. The only way that you could come to God was if Jesus died. So why would God send His Son to be killed? Because He loves you. And secondly, so that His Son would be exalted. Christ didn't stay dead. He was resurrected as proof that God accepted His sacrifice. And as a result, Christ is exalted above all the universe so that at the name of Jesus, There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. So, number one, who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? God brought about the death of Christ. He planned it so that you could have life, so that Christ could be exalted. Number two, what does it look like to reject God's Son today. If we, we say that those who reject God's Son reject God, those who reject God's Son will receive judgment from God's Son. So what does it look like to reject God's Son today? There are serious consequences to rejecting God's Son. Not for the Son Himself, as if He were going to have His feelings hurt or that His death is going to be of lesser value. But there, there are serious consequences for the rejecter of Him because He will crush those who reject Him. He will trample underfoot His enemies in the winepress wine press of the wrath of God Almighty. Revelation 14.19 To reject God's Son is to reject God. But what does it mean to reject God's Son? And I think very simply, to reject God's Son is to reject God's Word. Why do I say that? Because John 1.14 says that Christ is the Word who became flesh. That's, that's the word that is described of Him. The, 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 uh, the term that is used to describe Him is the Word. Jesus is the Word. So to reject the Word is to reject Jesus. In Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, God tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He's the exact representation of God. So that means that we, having been given this great resource of the Gospel in God's Word, must respond to God, our owner, by responding to His Word. By answering the call to repent and believe. And that means that that you and I need to look into the mirror of God's Word. When someone approaches us with the reality, the truth of God's Word, when when we come under the hearing of God's Word and recognize that this is God speaking to us, in His Word. When, when we look at His Word in our own personal stu- study, or when, when, when someone explains to us the importance of God's Word and how it should have an effect on our lives, when, when something in God's Word doesn't match our lifestyle, how do we respond? Do we get frustrated? Do we explain it away by saying, you know, that's not really talking about me? We have to guard ourselves because sometimes those who have been given most are the most blinded to reality. Sometimes we can get so calloused to hearing God's Word that it becomes old, cold. We become cold and indifferent to it. 
And we have to guard ourselves against that because I think that the Scriptures are clear that those who reject God's Word and its claim on our obedience are rejecting God's Son. Number three. If God's enemies killed the prophets and killed God's sons, what do, they, what do you think they will do to you? If God's enemies killed the messengers of the owner and killed the son of the owner, what do you think they're going to do to you? Jesus said that since they persecuted Me, you can be sure that they will persecute you. But don't let persecutions by the world discourage you. In Acts 5, when the apostles are persecuted, Luke recorded that they went away, they went on their way from the presence of the council after having been persecuted, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They will persecute you. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. It's guaranteed. It may not come in the form of physical abuse. It may not come in the form of physical harm. But it will come to every believer. They may defame your name. They may stop talking to you. They may despise you because of your connection to Christ. Persecution will come. But don't let that alarm you or keep you from doing God's will. If you are persecuted by the world because of your position in Christ and not because of evil, then God is honored. God is honored by your reception of persecution on behalf of His Son. Number four, how much of our life belongs to Jesus? How much of our life belongs to Jesus? Jesus has authority over our whole life. But but has He become a stumbling block for us? Are we treating Him like the workers of the vineyard? Or have we accepted Him as our Lord? As, as the true Messiah, the one to whom we must submit in every area of life. Those who have been given the most are often the most blinded to reality, the most unthankful, ungrateful to what God has given. And so here, here's the challenge for us, like the vine growers received this great resource from God. They had, they had the commission over His vineyard. What kind of resources has God given us and what kind of stewards are we with those resources? Because with the the resources that God gives to us comes responsibility. He doesn't say, just here, here, just do whatever you want with these things. God has graciously provided for us. He's been patient with our unbelief and rejection of Him at times. He showed His love to us in no better way than sending His best representative, His Son, And we can reject Him for a time, but there will come a day when His patience will come to an end. And Jesus will come in righteous judgment to consume those who have rejected Him. Consume those who have rejected His Word. So I ask you, what are you doing with the resources that you've been given? Most importantly, what are you doing with the the great resource of God's Word? His revelation about His Son. Are you treasuring it? Are you using it for His purposes? Or are you using it in order to advance your own 
desires. Your own claim, your own position. See, God has given us His Word for His purposes and we need to use it in that way. Otherwise, we end up like the religious leaders. We say, that's nice, God. I know you said a lot of things, but, but we want the ownership of it. We want to be able to do it with it how we please because we don't actually think you're a rewarder of those who seek you. We don't think you're actually going to give us any of the, the inheritance. So we'll reject you and do it our own way. It's not enough to receive God's Word. We need to actually... We, we need to be proper stewards of it, to use it for God's purposes. And so the, the answer to the question is, all of our life belongs to Jesus and we must be good stewards of the resources that we have been given. Not, not just the Word, not just money, not just the, the land, the, 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 the uh, time, the abilities that we have. Everything that we have been given has been given to us by God and we have a responsibility to use it for His purposes. We don't want to stumble on the stone that has been presented to us because He has become the chief cornerstone. And those who uh, fall on Him or those who have it, the, the, the stone fall on them will be destroyed. Let's pray. Father, wake us up to the reality of living for You. Lord, help us not to go another day uh, without considering the great resources that we have been given and our responsibility to You to use them for Your purposes. It's so easy to get stuck in a routine that, that pushes You to the periphery of life and moves to the center the things that are of greatest value to us. And Lord, we don't want to to be that way. Lord, You give us great things to enjoy in this life and we should enjoy them because You've given them to us to richly enjoy. But, but Lord, we don't want those to become idols for us. We don't want them to replace You as primary in our lives. So Lord, tear down those idols that are in our hearts that we've built up in our hearts. Lord, set Jesus Christ up as Lord in our lives. Make us submit to Him. Initiate the work of repentance and faith as we continue to walk through the life as a Christian. Certainly, our, our life as a Christian began with faith and repentance, but, but it also continues in that way as well. And so we need to constantly be coming into the